0: Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Anwar Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Louther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the
1: hosts and the guests
0: are their own. Welcome back to another episode of NuclearCast. Of course, I am your host, as always, Adam Lowry, and today we have on our show a man who is a plank owner of the National Nuclear Security Administration, and there aren't that many of them, but he's one of them. Now, before I give you his name, he started his career as a congressional staffer for a member of Congress, and then was a PSM, a professional staff member, and then like many who start their career in Congress, he's moved on to bigger and better things. And ultimately, he served as an appointee in the Department of Defense, you know, one of the DASD and ASD and all of those things. And then he was the second appointee to serve in the brand new NSA, And so we thought we'd have Rob Hood on today to talk about the formation of NNSA, you know, how it got created, how those early days went, and of course, Rob's opinion on where we are now. And is it achieving the mission that it was created? So, with that introduction, let me bring in Rob Hood. Thanks for joining us. Well,
1: thanks, Adam. It's it's great to be a part of the the discussion, you know, I think it's a really important uh, history that we don't forget. And that was the, the sort of the, the unique creation of what became a semi-autonomous agency uh, known as the National Nuclear Security Administration within the Department of Energy. Uh, interesting story in its creation starting in 1999, Congress began to, to push for a change at the Department of Energy. Uh, interestingly enough, I was on the House Science Committee at the time. And my job at the time was to uh, fight the Armed Services Committee, who was trying to create the NNSA because our committee was worried of losing jurisdiction over the research side of the national laboratories, which, of course, are a a major crown jewel for this country. And to only fast forward from there to end up being uh, one of the first uh, politicals to arrive, if not probably the first political to arrive on, on behalf of the Bush administration in 2001. Uh, to join general gordon who had become the first administrator and undersecretary uh for this new role so it it was interesting to go from a guy fighting its creation trying to stop it in congress to um becoming one of i you know would classify myself as a plank owner of the um the nnsa and becoming you know just an absolute uh uh fan and supporter of its mission and uh you know, the people who work there, you know, I've, I've been very blessed I have lots of interesting jobs in this town over 30 years. And my time at NSA is by far probably one of my most favorite jobs I've ever had uh, in terms of working with the people, creating something almost from scratch, if you will, um, was just a, a fantastic opportunity. Uh, and one I'll always be grateful to be a part of.
0: So what was, let's go back to the beginning, and what was the rationale for Congress passing legislation to create an NSA?
1: So at the Department of Energy, its primary uh, jurisdiction belongs to the Energy and Commerce Committee and then the uh, Energy and Natural Resources Committee on the Senate uh, and to a lesser extent the Science Committee, which is where I was a professional staff member, Uh, and then the Armed Services Committee. And so you had this really complicated jurisdictional overlay. And then, of course, you had the appropriators who played a a major role through the energy and water appropriations, all trying to come to grasp of of oversight and frustration um, with the nuclear weapons program at the department. Uh, You may recall there was the Wen Ho Lee scandal of sort of quote-unquote spying, Uh, the cost overruns. You know, this was all in a time following the collapse of the Soviet Union, the end of the Cold War, you know, you know, was there a peace dividend coming? Was, was the nuclear weapons program, you know, relevant in a world where, you know, sort of the Cold War had come to an end? And, and so there were all these changes and questions we had stopped testing in 1992, trying to devise what would become a, a science-based stockpile stewardship program Which you know looked to be very costly, very complicated, uh, and and to a degree untested, right? Uh, You know, unproven. And I think all those things led to frustration in Congress, and and driven really by the Armed Services Committee and uh, Senator Pete Domenici on the on the Senate Appropriations Committee for Energy and Water, really drove this change over the objections of the Commerce Committee, over the objections of the Science Committee. And was put into the national defense authorization act uh for two thousand and that was the birth of title thirty two and the beginning of what became a a compromise you know I think the initial attempt was to create a an absolute separate organization and through that process, the compromise became a semi autonomous uh agency still residing inside the department of energy and that that was the crux of what you know began now, you know the journey of 20 years for the NNSA.
0: And, and what was the argument against its creation? What was the well, rationale?
1: The, certainly the secretary felt that he was on the hook as the secretary in terms of defending the agency, taking um, the heat for when things went wrong. Uh, part of his budget, if you will, his overall depart, you know, department of energy budget. Uh, and so I think, his view was that he needed to maintain control and, and didn't want to change in the structure. Um, you know, again, the labs were these crown jewels all across the country. And so from a, a science committee perspective, which again, where I was working at the time, we didn't want to lose our ability to have oversight and connections to, uh, the R and D activities at those laboratories. Um, you know, and what happened with the act then, For the most part, all of that got consolidated into the armed services committees of the House and Senate. Uh, It's not to say that Energy and Commerce still doesn't and and had at the time some oversight roles, but it clearly became a national security apparatus, slightly, again, separate from the rest of the department.
0: Now, as somebody who participated both on the congressional side, then the stand up, as you looked at that stand up period were you able to accomplish what the legislation sort of designed in NSA to be? Did the entity that was created mirror, you know, the legislation that, that created it?
1: I think for a time it was, it was definitely trending in that direction early on. Um, You know, in the, in the act itself, it it listed out certain positions that the, the, the administrator would, would get to have, and that included the Congressional Affairs piece, General Counsel, and so on. So it allowed them to stand up uh, a full staff inside uh, the Department of Energy that would work directly for the NNSA. And and I think at the time under General Gordon's leadership, and if you've spent any time talking about General Gordon on, on the podcast or you look at his resume, I mean, it's one of the most amazing resumes I've ever seen in my life. Is just, he was, you couldn't have picked a more perfect candidate to lead the NNSA in terms of his, you know, three-star general in the Air Force. a missileer you know, PhD, you worked in the labs as a young man, you know, worked uh, as the deputy director of the CIA. I mean, he just resume was insane. And he came with a tremendous amount of clout, um, came as sort of the, the objection to the original secretary, Secretary Richardson. Uh, back then it was Senator John Warner of Virginia who really pushed to have General Gordon put into this position. So he came directly from the CIA and arrived at at the NNSA. And so I think there was a time where you could feel this, this momentum when I arrived, you know, we were putting uh, stickers of the NNSA logo that we had just created onto our DOE badges, you know, and, and we were feeling very, maybe bullish, if you will, on, on sort of what, how, how far we could push that semi-autonomous um, definition uh, that Title 32 gave. And with that, you know, that first year was really creating this agency of how is it going to be designed? What was the wire diagram going to look like in terms of uh, the actual organizational structure of this now new agency? Where did it fit? Uh, with Congress, and that was sort of then became my role was really then working with Congress. Are we achieving the objectives that were set out? Um, and I'd say n- nothing's ever perfect, right? Like we, you know, there were always um, opportunities. I'm sure from Congress's view that we were failing to meet, but I think considering uh, the huge lift of creating something uh, inside of a an institution that was not really willing to have it be created, right? So, uh, you know, certainly some uh, uh, pushback, if you will, uh, from inside the Department of Energy, of, uh, how to create this. Not quite sure where it would fit within the Pentagon structure of the, you know, the larger defense community. Um, and and then getting a seat at the, the, you know, the Nuclear Weapons Council was, I think, a key part of that growth. Um, and so then, nine eleven happens. Like so, so we're within nine months, basically, of the Bush administration trying to get this um, new, you know, semi-autonomous agency up and running. You know, along comes you know September eleventh, you know, two thousand one, which in many ways changed everything in Washington, not just at the Department of Energy, um, and it added, I think, a new view for the then now the new secretary secretary you know spence abraham who really i think came in thinking like all secretaries of the department of energy everything they were gonna do is gonna be focused on you know gas prices and you know nuclear power and um you know renewables and all these things and all of a sudden he was really a national security leader right um, you know the, you know nsa is about you know at the time was probably about two-thirds of the department of energy's budget we were creating the non-proliferation office. all of a sudden, that had a sense of urgency to its mission, not only you know trying to help you know, the former Soviet Union uh, secure its materials and, and, and understand potential um, loose fissile material around the globe, and how do you stop that from but all of a sudden it became really real. What if you know al Qaeda got its hands on? You know, fissile materials, how how what 9-11 would have looked like had it been, you know, uh you know, some sort of radiological event, right? So a whole sense of I think that really spurred a good working relationship between Secretary Abraham and General Gordon because of this you know changing circumstance uh on the national security front. And and I think that lasted a while and but eventually all secretaries who feel um that they have to control everything inside their department, you know, that led to some continued rifts between NNSA and, and what we used to call, a, you know, a big DOE. Um, you know, we were asked to take our stickers off our badges, right? We could no longer have an NSA sticker <laughs> on our badge. Um, you know, we, they wanted more control through the budget process and so on. So it, it's kind of ebbed and flowed from that perspective. Um, and certainly, you know did we meet the the intent for congress i mean it's tough to say because you're trying to implement a brand new organization that's trying to implement a brand new way of certifying the stockpile which was going through science-based you know matter no longer testing right so we couldn't couldn't go out to nevada and you know test what was happening over aging you trying to understand what was happening with pits you know in terms of you know important part of the weapon and its aging process. And, you know, a lot of these weapons were, you know, built, you know, fast forward 20 years, they're still struggling with this, but back then they were considered old, right? A lot of these weapon systems came into, into the stockpile in the seventies and the early eighties. And no one was really sure what, what did that mean? You know, what did age do to those components? And so that became a very expensive undertaking. Needed new tools at the laboratories, needed new processes and new mindsets of, of how to do that. And and I think that certainly uh, drew criticism from Congress in, in some areas. If that was too much money or we were chasing too many things, um, you know, there was always the question of, was the, were the laboratories properly managed? You know, were they these sort of, uh, uh, you know, protected empires? Uh, particularly in New Mexico uh, that couldn't be touched or managed. And, and I think some of that was probably a little unfair uh, criticisms, you know, again, uh, when you think again of the tasks that they were given to certify the stockpile uh, with again, tools that no one had ever heard of or used before or even finished developing, um, you know, waiting for things like NIF to come online at Livermore I and mean, yeah, I was supposed to come online in like five, six years, and then I think it was around fifteen years when it finally, uh, or maybe even close to twenty years before it finally did something, right? So, uh, in the meantime, you know, the, these laboratories had to annually submit their report to the president that the stockpile was safe, secure, and reliable, and that, that is a tough, tough, and serious job.
0: Now we're at that time of the show where we have to take a quick break, but when we come back. I want to get your take on where NNSA is today. Is it doing what it was designed to do, or is it doing something else? You're listening to Nuclecast, and we'll be right back. This episode of NuclearCast is brought to you by the Amla Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. We're back, and we're talking to Rob Hood, a Plank owner of NNSA. Now, Rob, before the show, I didn't tell you this, but I too am a Plank owner. I am not a Plank owner of NNSA. I am a Plank owner of the USS Ramage, DDG sixty one, one of the Arleigh Burke class destroyers, and uh, I I can empathize with the challenges of standing up a new government entity. So I, I, I have deep empathy for you there now before the break, I ask: is an NSA doing what it was intended to do? What say you Rob?
1: I I think it's, it's a tough place to be. Um, I would argue that they are, you're, you're looking, you know, are they doing it in a way that, uh, makes everybody happy in terms of cost uh, overruns, delays and and uh, deliveries probably not you know you, you know the Navy and the Air Force are, are tough customers sometimes um, uh, and these systems you know th- there can be uh, you know zero defects right there, there's a zero risk factor when you're dealing with this you know you, you everything has to be absolutely perfect but with that said um, I do think the agency has ebbed and flowed in its sort of semi-autonomous state um, I would note that there was a time when You know, after Secretary uh, Spence Abraham uh, left the the administration, that the kind of went from his national security focus to more of a science focus. And that took, uh, you know, attention away from the NNSA. Uh, We had a secretary at the time who had come from another department that had a semi-autonomous agency known as the IRS. And he he wanted no part of having a semi-autonomous uh, agency under his his control, and so he really began to uh, tighten those strings and and that was about the time I left for the Pentagon but I think overall i think n n s a continues to deliver on its mission um, unfortunately, sometimes politics you know we have swaying views you know different- administrations come in with different views and and you know i think or different congresses come in with different priorities, and those things can really have a, a significant ripple effect to NNSA because then they're trying to react to a new political reality or a new direction. By the time you kind of turn the boat, if you will, um, you know, steal from your Navy days, right? <laughs> All of a sudden you got to turn it again because things have changed, right? You can't just turn on a dime. And and I think that that causes a lot of, of challenges um, in that process. But I think overall, I think NNSA... Uh, is, is still very important, very relevant. You know, as we watch the, the rise of China. You know what, what's going on in Russia still with you know with, with, with Putin and you know it's sort of the the chest thumping of nuclear weapons. I, I still think uh, it is incredibly important that we have an agency that's focused on ensuring uh, not only the reliability and safety of, of the existing stockpile, but where does that stock, what does that stockpile need to look like? And what kind of capabilities does it need to have down the road? And that gets very politically debatable. And, and I certainly understand that. that uh, and then the non-proliferation program, there was a time when we thought the non-proliferation program would run its course, right? We would secure all this fissile material in the former Soviet Union, you know, build all these various uh, checkpoints around the globe through ports and other places. And at some point, it would sort of wind down, right, You know, in, in the sense of uh, those materials would all be secured. But with new players coming onto the scene, you know, in the geopolitical space, you know, I think, you know, the NN program is just as relevant, if not more relevant, today in trying to understand, you know, what are other kind of rogue countries doing in the nuclear fissile material space? How can we ensure, you know, that it's not getting into the wrong hands uh, of you know potential international terrorists or others that might uh, look to do harm to our country through you know, fissile materials
0: well, let me ask you a question that you know i've I've heard varying opinions on, and that is the idea of having essentially you know taking in an SA and making it a DoD entity. I mean this was a discussion it, we, we obviously didn't go that direction what What were the debates? in terms of the good and the bad of, of moving it back. Sure. I mean, DOD in many respects, you know, as it's, it's, you know, I worked at the the U S embassy in London at a time. And as a DOD guy working at an embassy, I looked at the state department staff and thought, man, these guys don't understand having a mission. You know, they go to cocktail parties. They, they measure <laughs> grip and grins. They don't measure effectiveness. And so, you know, DOD has its own culture that is very different, or DOE, sorry, has its own culture yeah. that's very different than DOD's culture. And so I, I'm curious about that discussion, that debate, and, you know, we know how it came out, but but why did it come out that way?
1: Yeah, I, I'd say there was probably sort of four options at, at setting up the NSA that were looked at, right? There was sort of do nothing, right? Just you know, keep it the way it was structured is just a, uh, mat, you know, a multitude of different programs within the Department of Energy. Uh, there was then, I think, the initial push, which, which was to create a, a entirely independent uh, organization, you know, that would be the NSA, and it would be its own stand-up. Uh, then, there, then the compromise obviously ended up being a semi-autonomous, which I would argue is a really tough word. Semi-time of the the that's it's really the definition of that word is in the eye of the beholder. And it's you know, I, I think doesn't give a lot of clear direction of what that means and has created confusion and uh over time. And then there was the thought of taking it all the way and putting it over the Department of, of Defense. You know, was that sort of its natural home? Because its customer was the Department of Defense between the Navy and the Air Force, uh and working with nuclear matters, which is the office there Uh, in the Undersecretary for Acquisition Sustainment, or was it, you know, some part of the policy shop at at DOD? Where did it fit? And I think the thought was, if it went to the Department of Defense at the time, and of course, keep in mind, this was sort of pre-9-11, right? So pre-GWAT, pre-massive increases to the defense budget. We were still talking about um the peace dividend coming at the end of the cold like would it just get butchered in the budget process uh at the department of defense because it, it didn't really have a home it didn't have an advocate for it if you will uh, and certainly the appropriators didn't want to see that from the energy and water perspective right That this was their crown jewel for the most part in terms of their jurisdiction of what they appropriated for um and so i'd i They, you know, I think they readdressed this issue not too long ago, whether or not there was a push during the Trump administration uh, to put it back over the Department of Defense. The Senate Armed Services Committee took a really hard look at at doing that because they were getting frustrated, um, you know, with management at the, you know, where it fit in the Department of Energy. And my just so happened how this is a small world. I was then the assistant secretary for Ledge Affairs at the Department of Defense and got dragged into this. Debate, um, you know, all these years later, uh, you know, almost what, 17 years later, uh, and making the argument, particularly to the Senate Armed Services Committee, that the argument that that we used in 2001 probably still held in 2018, 2019 of if you move it to the department, it just kind of gets gobbled up and lost. And and to some degree, you lose civilian control. like there was always this really important part of NNSA. That you had sort of civilian control of the nuclear weapons enterprise, and I, and I still think that's important, right? That just that's a sign of kind of how we have certain safety measures, if you will, in terms of uh, control of the nuclear weapons. And so, I go back to General Gordon at one point after he had gone on to go to the White House and become President Bush's uh, original advisor on. Uh, Homeland Security before there was a Department of Homeland Security again following 9 11. And I think his point was, I had a window to move and I should have moved. And I think it wasn't so much being entirely independent. I think his thought was at one point we had looked at a building moving NNSA out of the four stall building uh, into a separate building. And I think he, I agreed with that assessment and said, you know, that would have given us true semi autonomous because we would have been. Just the the fact of distance, I think, would have created a a more uh, lasting sort of semi-autonomous, almost autonomous uh, mindset for the agency. But in the end, they chose not to do that. They decided to stay within the four-stall building. Um, And I get some of the rationale then was they wanted to be close to the secretary and again, all those sorts of things. But uh, I think from General Gordon's perspective, telling me, looking back, he regretted not leaving the building and taking the agents. And I, and I think that could have created a stronger semi-autonomous versus an autonomous agency. And again, the, the, the reluctance to being autonomous was who was going to advocate for our budget, who was going to advocate, you know, we'd be this tiny little agency in the, the grand scheme of things. And would we get lost? Don't know if that'd be true, but that was certainly the concern. Um, and so that was a very long winded way of answering your question.
0: Well, so I, I haven't told you this before, but I am probably one of the nation's greatest practitioners of hindsight. Uh, I, my superhero name is Captain Hindsight, and I, I, go, you know, I go to places where bad things have happened and, and offer my superhero skills. And so I want to bequeath that skill to you and ask you to exercise some of my superpower as a hindsight practitioner and look back, you know, 20 years on and, it, you know, does hindsight suggest to you that there's anything that you would do differently?
1: Uh, so I, I think from my perspective, and again, I was in that kind of congressional affairs silo, if you will, for the agency. Um, and we worked very hard to be a very bipartisan operation working with. Uh, at the time, you know, the Senate had gone Republican and flipped back to Democrat and then back to Republican in my time there. Um, but, uh, you know, I think our issues were, you know, allowing certain things to become too political, uh, particularly as we looked at uh, what became sort of almost unspeakable was sort of the modernizing the platforms. And that became very, very political. And, and I get, I mean, isn't it is new nuclear weapons, and maybe the foresight of not being able to kind of see the rise of China just yet, right, and understanding where uh, the fact that the Russians were still continuing to invest massive sums of resources into their modernization programs. And we were kind of trying to figure out, how do we hang on to a 1960s vintage system? <laughs> um, the cube, the Cuban model, the right?
0: right? You, you were following <laughs> the Cuba model.
1: That's right. And was it offering the right kind of deterrence? You know, and that's that's the whole point of the stockpile, at least from my perspective, was its deterrence value, because the whole point was you never, ever wanted to use any of these weapon systems. Right. That That's that meant everything went wrong if you got to that point. So the point was that it was a deterrence. So you never, ever had to worry about uh, having to use, you know, unleash these weapons on the world. Right. Like that was and I think. The politics, particularly following, again, 9-11, really influenced a lot of things that uh, some members, you know, in, in, on the other side of the aisle from the President Bush were worried. And one of them told me this. Oh, he's a cowboy from Texas. He'll love to use a nuclear weapon. And i just so astounded. I'm like, you have to be kidding me. Like, of course he doesn't want like, No president. No president wants to be that president. No one wants to be, you know, I think we all, they all want to leave it as part of Truman's history that like he was the one and only president that used it at the end, you know, World War II. And, and, but because of that, when we tried to have conversations about modernization and looking at, at, at sort of different things to provide different sense of deterrence, those conversations became just highly political. And it was very unfortunate. I think so looking back and trying to fix or do things better that, that I had a part in would be, to try to find a better way to depoliticize those discussions uh, and, and try to move forward. And, and you know, one of those uh, was, you know, the famous RNF, the, ro- the robust nuclear earth penetrator. And, you know, and it was just, and that, and it was a bipartisan problem. It was, and I shouldn't say it was just one side of the aisle or the other. It was both sides trying to understand why we needed a, a different, capability. And and I think not fully uh, appreciating the changing landscape, be it North Korea and China and others, of why that weapon system would uh, provide deterrence. And for me, it came home when Kurt Weldon, a former member of Congress, very famous member of Congress from Pennsylvania, he would always go to places he was told he couldn't go. You're not allowed to go there. You know, Kurt Weldon would go there. And he was very involved in, in and strategic issues and so he took a group of members and they went to north korea snuck in there somehow against the state department's guidance and department of Defense's guidance and, and he took a democrat member with him and that member happened to be the ranking member on strategic forces on the house and i remember talking to that congressman when he came back and he's you know when he left he was opposed to rnf and when he came back he said i understand why you need this because it's all the North Koreans wanted to talk about. It's the one thing that's got their attention. <laughs> it may rein them in from doing something stupid because it was a system they realized was usable, and I know that that freaks people out when you say that, but if it's not usable, then it's not really providing deterrent if your opponent your you know people you're trying to deter you know have no belief that you might actually use the weapon system, it fails its deterrence right sure. so um, so for me, that really told me how important that system could be. And unfortunately with politics, and again, it was a Republican that ended up killing the program, the appropriations process. Um, that was on me, you know, as failing to really do a better job of communicating with Congress on, on the long-term strategic value it would have played to help deterrence, not, not lower deterrence in terms of making it. Their fear was oh it's usable, so therefore it'll it'll uh, destabilize right. versus stabilize and and we again, I think that was on me really failed to better communicate that to members of congress um and move forward so that uh I think looking back for me and, and you know hindsight for me that was one i I felt I really let the the n n s a down on and not achieving that objective
0: I tell you what. That's a, a a great, you know, a a great uh, bit of hindsight, and and I tell you, hindsight's a powerful uh, superpower. So, uh, uh, you know, I'm I'm glad you used it wisely. <laughs> well, un- unfortunately, though, we are out of time. So, thanks, Rob. Thanks for coming on. It was an interesting discussion about sort of the foundation of of in essay, and I'm sure the listeners now know more about its creation and the motivations behind it than they did before. So thanks for bringing that to us.
1: Well, Adam, thanks for having me. Again, you know, NNSA has got a special place in my heart. Uh, It was a great place to work. I worked with some great Titans. You know, I didn't get a chance to mention, you know, Ambassador Linton Brooks who was the following administrator after General Gordon and uh, and Tom D'Agostino after him. So there's a lot of super talented, great public servants of, of, Dedicated their lives to this mission. And and I'm just uh, very blessed to have been a small piece of their efforts.
0: Well, thanks. Thanks for joining us on NucleCast. And thanks to you, the listeners. And we will see you on the next episode. Well, so for some afterthoughts, it's pretty straightforward. That was an interesting discussion of the history of NNSA. And I was particularly. Grateful that Rob was willing to take my superpower of hindsight and, you know, engage in some good old fashioned cultural revolution style self-criticism. You know, it was uh, it was good of him to say, you know, hey, here's I wish I could have been more effective in keeping this from going pickle, you know, and talked about our and so that's uh you know these are hard lifts i i think you know i as a young sailor i pre-commissioned the uss ramage and then have been a part of the stand-up of the air force research institute and sands and so creating new government entities is really hard so it's uh it's always good to try to capture some of those lessons that we can learn from doing that so it it was a good interview this has been a production of the ANWHA Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Cherrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Krumthal. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Nuclecast. Listen,
1: follow, and review the show on Spotify,